0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When you were in high school, did you feel like you and your friends and the things you were doing were the most important things in the world? My guest Danny McBride did, too. Until he went back to high school as a substitute teacher. All it takes is to
2: come back, like three years later, four years later, and all those things that were important to you, all those people that like mattered and were these fixtures, they're all gone, and none of these people know who any of them were, and they all have their own things. I mean, it's like, I really do think it's like a chance to see what it would be like to just be a ghost.
1: Dust in the wind, man. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with writer and actor Danny McBride about his new show on HBO, Vice Principles. We'll talk about how he and co-creator Jody Hill shared the same sense of humor to the point where his performance is often basically just aimed at one guy.
2: I'll just always be performing for him uh, when I'm doing stuff like that, just trying to, like, get him to laugh off camera. And so a lot of that stuff is really me just saying that to Jody <laughs>
1: We'll also talk about McBride's first HBO series, Eastbound and Down, and why he doesn't always enjoy running into fans of that show.
2: I mean, there's been times where I've been out to a bar and someone will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm just like Kenny Powers. And it's just like, all right, I'm
1: out the door. <laughs> and later we'll hear from bassist Miroslav Vichys, who helped shape the new direction of jazz in the 1960s alongside fellow musicians Wayne Shorter, John McLaughlin, and Chick Corea. He'll tell us about the recording session that changed his life. And I'll tell you about why Taika Waititi's new movie about two guys killing pigs in the wilderness is twee, and why I am using the word twee as a compliment. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 2006, a movie called The Foot Fist Way got into Sundance. It changed some lives. Since film school, Danny McBride had been mostly substitute teaching, working as a PA in Los Angeles. He ended up becoming a movie star. Jody Hill was editing reality shows and temping. He got to quit his office job and become a feature film director. It wasn't all smooth sailing after that. The movie didn't actually end up selling at Sundance, but it felt completely new. It was natural, hilarious, and both gleefully fun and brutally dark. It ended up beginning an HBO show, Eastbound and Down, a feature film called Observe and Report, and a new career path for McBride and Hill and their friends from the North Carolina School of the Arts. Their new HBO show is called Vice Principals. It's about two administrators who think they're in line to become the principal of a high school. One is an arrogant bully, played by McBride. One's a kiss-up, and also possibly a psychopath, played by Walton Goggins. Here they are in confrontation the day before a new principal gets picked. Listen here.
2: Come tomorrow, there's a brand-new principal in town, and his name is Neil Gamby. And those who want to be catty little well, they can kiss their jobs could buy, that is a Gamby promise. So confident, aren't you, Gamby? Too bad the school board's still undecided. <sighs> They're not. They know exactly who's going to be the principal. Why is this job so important to you, Gamby? Is it because you got absolutely <laughs> all else going on in your life? You wish you had my life. the <laughs> force loses what you are. Look at you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Danny McBride, it is great to have you on Bullseye. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I genuinely find Walton Goggins terrifying. Maybe it's because I just watched the first few episodes of the new show, but, like, also I watched Justified on FX, and I guess his character on that show was supposed to get killed off after, like, two episodes or something. But he is undeniable. They couldn't kill him off, yeah. Yeah, But he is so terrifying. (laughs) Like, rarely do you find an actor who is not that physically imposing, who is that terrifying.
2: Yeah, he has a total dangerous element to him, uh... Yeah, and he's uh, so funny too. He's he's always flexing these dramatic skills, but he's got a sick sense of
1: humor. About so, him. so why did you why did you and Jody Hill, who co-created this new show, Vice Principals, think that he was funny? He just has that uh, ability. Like I, I, my favorite actors
2: are always the guys who like even in their dramatic work, there's like an underlying like wit to them. And uh, and, and I don't know. For whatever reason, this Walton's face just makes me laugh. Like I like when <laughs> I just like see the smile and all those teeth. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, we had a really tough time trying to figure out who would play Lee Russell. I think it's like a character. I think it's probably one of the best characters we've ever written before. He's just so – crazy and diabolical and uh it it was going to take a special actor to pull that off we didn't really want just to get a straight comedic actor uh it had to be somebody with some dramatic chops and uh we were searching forever for it yeah we uh we tracked him down and i sent him the scripts and uh he was shooting hateful eight at the time and he called me up and as soon as uh i answered the phone he just started talking to me like lee russell and like saying lines from the script without any direction or anything and we just knew he was our guy
1: You know, I I was listening to an old interview. I think it was an old interview with Jody Hill on uh, the treatment with Elvis Mitchell. And one of the things that he talked about was what he laughs at. Mm -hmm. And the examples that he gave were like good fellas. Mm -hmm. Like – I can't, I probably can't believe maybe Taxi Driver was one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's our sensibility
2: is like when people are like, well, what comedies do you like? I don't even really like comedies that much. I'm like more influenced and inspired by these other like darker, more dramatic films. And like, uh, yeah, it's like to me, the average comedy gets a little boring by the third act when you actually have to kind of like invest in these characters if you've just been laughing at them the whole time. And so I think, uh, with something like goodfellas like the moments of humor in that are are just sublime i think there's so it's so funny because it's wrapped up in such
1: darkness and violence I, yeah i love it there's almost no jokes in your work like there are there are tons of funny parts and they're mostly comedy but almost no jokes.
2: Yeah, we really, we really, we never approach the scripts like they're comedic. We always kind of approach them like they're dramas that have very, like lots of funny parts in them. So we never write punchlines. We're never like trying to kind of do the normal structure that a sitcom would have with uh, like a one, two, three sort of setup and payoff. Uh, it's always about the situation and about the character, like, you know, just being I guess developed well enough that you can like see what he's thinking and see how ridiculous he is or when
1: you say you're when you say you're not trying to do that do you mean that you are actively trying not to do that yeah we do
2: in the writer's room and that's that's been one of the hardest things when we when we put together these small writer's rooms to do the show we'll get guys from other comedy shows and they come in and the and what we'll do is like the first stuff that they give us we're always just like that jokes to that joke is reading like a joke get it out of there get it out of there and we uh Yeah, so we're always stripping that stuff out constantly.
1: I want to play something from The Foot Fist Way, which was uh, directed by Jody Hill, who you co-created this uh, show with and was the sort of entree into real-life, full-time professional show business for the both of you. And it's a movie in which you play like a sort of a strip mall taekwondo instructor who's really a pathetic dude. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) To say the least <laughs> I mean, you've played a lot of comic characters who are at their heart really really <laughs> pathetic dudes but this was um, this was the first time at least for most of us this is a scene in which he is in his office I think it is w- with one of his students and he's he's trying to get her to go out with him oh yeah I know I seem
2: like a serious martial artist but outside of class I like to cut loose I like to have a good time have beer too go to a musical dance club, just kind of really get get down and just kind of just be free. That's cool. Yeah, it's real cool. You like to party? <laughs> we should party together sometime. I'll give you a call.
0: Um, I don't think that that's a situation. I don't even need
2: to... Uh, we don't have to even go through the weird schematics of me asking you. I already got your number and address from your registration form.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what I... One of the things that I really like about that scene and one of the things that makes the movie so distinct is so you have, as close as it gets to a joke in this movie, which is Musical Dance Club, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty pretty solid piece of business. I got no complaints about Musical Dance Club. But um, it goes immediately, and this is the hero of the movie, you know, such as it is, it goes immediately to basically him threatening to stalk her. Yeah, like he already
2: has all of her info. I, when we shot that scene, you know, we made that movie for I think it, we we shot it for like less than seventy grand. We did the whole movie in fourteen days, and I remember that scene when we what we had written on the page was like. Nothing. Musical dance clubs was not in there. And uh, and Jody just set the camera up and was just like, just pick her up. Let's see what happens, you know. And it was – that whole scene was all improv. And it just got so creepy in there. And, you know, we obviously had never done anything before. So that – the actress Colette Wolf that was in there, she didn't know who we were and – she wasn't aware of what the tone of this movie was, <laughs> and you could just feel it in the room getting so uncomfortable <laughs> as it just kept going on. Uh, but a lot of times, Jody and I will just try to in these scenes, just like because we do have such a strange sense of sense of humor, I guess. Like I'll just always be performing for him uh, when I'm doing stuff like that, and just trying to like get him to laugh off camera. And so a lot of that stuff is really me just saying that to Jody. <laughs>
1: I mean, like, I if you're performing for him, you're going to go to some really brutal places. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll write stuff, and me and him will both
2: laugh at it. And then when we will start performing it, it's like, whoa, this is a lot darker than I ever imagined that this would come off. And there's a moment in the second episode of Vice Principals where it's like it's the whole reason why we made the show, that there's just this scene at uh, the principal's house where – things get really, really out of hand. And I can remember that like reading it, it always made us laugh. And as soon as we saw it being, uh, it's like, whoa, this is dark. This is crazy.
1: It is. I've seen that scene, and it's terrifying to watch. Because you really feel, in a scene like that, and there were scenes like that in Eastbound and Down as well, you know, you're going along and you're going along with... Frankly, you know, a big part of it is how charming you are, Danny. It's like, you know, you're charmed by this character even though he's making awful choices and doing terrible things because, you know, he's trying to do something and you can see what he's trying to do even if he's doing a bad job. You know, that's how drama works. Yeah. <laughs> you identify with the protagonist almost no matter what. Yep. But then there are moments where you realize that you are going to have to deal with the weight of those choices. Exactly. And uh, and that's what I think is, you know, in,
2: in some regards, like Vice Principles is sort of like an answer to, like, the formulaic, like, ridiculous sort of, you know, high-concept comedy. You know, it's like if, if that were just sort of a... Studio comedy, it would be like, oh, they do a series of things where they make her look bad at her job and, and you know, this and that. And so it's just sort of like our take of like this isn't going to be like a story that goes down easy. It's, it's, it's going to go into some really weird, dark places that hopefully people aren't expecting. And, you know, we just... We, shot, we wrote the whole entire series before we shot any of it. And uh, so we wrote the whole, you know, beginning, middle, and end, 18 episodes. And we just delivered to HBO the last episode of the whole series. And it's like I'm sitting here, like, looking at where this goes, and I'm seeing how they're marketing it in the beginning. It's like no one's going to have a clue where this thing, <laughs>
1: where it ends up. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Danny McBride. He co-created and starred in the HBO show Eastbound and Down, his new show on HBO is Vice Principals. There's a moment in Eastbound and Down where two of the characters, including your character, open a, a baked potato bar kiosk, <laughs> if I remember correctly, yes. in a mall. And I remember, you know, they they just say the ixens to each other. Yeah, yeah. Meaning, <laughs> you know, your chives and whatnot. And I remember thinking, like on the one hand, this is the like this is like the jokiest thing that's ever happened yeah, on this show, yeah, like this <laughs> is really stretching. <laughs> but like when you have 40 hours or whatever it was at that point 20 hours I guess you just go with it <laughs> yeah it's you, it, it's earned like you can let the characters just go fixings to each other
2: you know that was all Jody we were just doing that scene and Jody just like at one point was just like Steve you know say fixings you know <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just turned into something that we it was making us laugh so hard we just kept repeating it to each other and uh, you know we improv a ton on Footfist Way and on Eastbound I mean we the scripts were that we'd make sure the stories were there and the character was there but we would always just rip it and riff and uh and and it's strange because i think in comedies now that is sort of the norm is uh to just, like, set the cameras up and let everyone riff. And so much so that I feel like now I I see it a mile away when I watch movies. I can tell, like, oh, this is a run because no one else is talking, just this person, and they're not talking about anything <laughs> It's moving the story along. So with Vice Principles, I think Jody and I were both of the mindset of, like, we should not do that with this. We should figure out how to just get it there on the page and I mean obviously you can reword things but I think the idea of going on runs and stuff it just I don't know it didn't seem it seemed like we wanted to try something different this time.
1: What's it like to live in the world with the kind of baggage and expectations of people's relationship with the characters that you've played on you know on their TV or, or in movies or whatever?
2: Uh, you know it's something that's new for me I, you know uh, I'm shooting a movie right now down in Australia and it's been a uh, it's been crazy to walk around there and and be people coming up to me all the time in another country about Kenny Powers and uh, you know it's definitely cool the fact that like we have worked so hard on that the idea that it does uh, resonate with people is awesome uh, and uh, but I think in in, a, in the same sense I see it even with vice principals is like you your work is always now going to be like what you're almost competing with you know it's like. Uh, it's something I guess I'm still figuring out but I, I, I like it I like the idea that this we've created a character that you know has resonated with people enough that they
1: think I am him <laughs> I think especially in comedy I think of Dave Chappelle a lot around this a guy who quit his job because he did not want to live with other people's interpretations and misinterpretations of the you know what he was trying to bring into the world mm-hmm. And, you know, he carried a, you know, he carried an incredible challenge that you and I don't have to face, which is that he was presumed to be representing his race, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just by the way American culture works. And he was very aware of that. Uh, I wonder if, especially as somebody who didn't initially aspire to be a performer, who just kind of ended up being a performer, and you're great at it, if you feel that kind of, like, weird thing, especially around stuff like Kenny Powers where, you know, there is this world of people who just, like, think it's cool that Kenny Powers is a, I'll use the word, jerk. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, it's, you know,
2: I completely understand that. But I also feel like, in a weird way, I almost feel like I don't, we don't think about, I feel like if I spend too much time thinking about how everything is interpreted, it almost will slow you down just kind of creating the stuff. It's, you know, uh, Wayne Kramer, <clears throat> who did the uh, the music for Eastbound and Down from the MC5. Remember, he told us when Eastbound first came out, he's like, you know, don't read the good reviews or the bad reviews. If you put weight in the good reviews, you have to put weight on the bad ones. And so that was like really struck with me, the idea that like, you're probably better off maybe not even trying to educate yourself on how exactly everything's being perceived because then it could, also, it could you know, change how you do things. You could get too in your head about the process and it might be a little easier just to keep it pure and just kind of focus on what you want to do and let history, just look back on it and figure out what it all was, if it was all a grand mess or if it was all a, you know, I think that the idea of just keeping working and not trying to focus too much on how everything's being interpreted or what people, because you don't really have any control over how people are going to respond to things, you know? I mean That
1: seems hard to me. I have a hard time with that with my work and I'm not a movie star. <laughs> the, the very, like when we, the very first studio movie I ever did, Hot Rod,
2: me and Bill Hader were shooting uh tropic thunder when that came out and so i had you know i had no no experience with like when a movie comes out like reviews on the internet or people on message boards and me and him were kind of sitting together like going through and like reading what people were saying about hot rod and it was like this is crazy that like how much people are like thrashing everybody and thrashing this and it quickly got into my head i'm like if i'm going to exist i have to now stop going to all the websites i used to go to and i have to just like protect myself in a way where I'm not listening to what the world is saying about what I'm doing and where I'm just focusing on, on the work. On Vice Principles, it was important for us to get that 18-episode order and complete the whole series before anybody saw it because we didn't want to be influenced by what the audience takes from this. We really wanted to create a pure vision and then let people you know, interpret it the way they want. Howard's super funny, by the way. Very funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a super funny movie. I mean, it's
1: there's some weird, you know, I understand why people, have, you know, I get why people wouldn't be into it. You know, I'm not saying it's for everyone, but that's a super funny movie. Was one of the things that you didn't see when you were, you know, whatever, 23 years old and just out of film school, uh, in the world of Hollywood movies, a representation that felt true to you of... uh for lack of a better word, southernness. Yeah, you know, it's, <clears throat> I, you know, I don't think we had, like,
2: some new message about, well, this is what the South is like. But I think that there's, like, uh, when I would see people setting things in the South for comedic purposes, I feel like they would, uh, I don't know, they, they would, like, blow it up and find jokes and just the Billy Bob type, shit, you, know, with, uh, you know, wearing overalls and having a, hey, you know, dangling out of your mouth or something. and To me, the South that I lived in was funnier on a way more subtle level, you know, and there was a little bit more nuance in it, whether it's uh, the idea of a taekwondo studio in a shopping mall, you know, in a strip mall. That is the South that I grew up in, and that made me laugh.
1: Were you glad that you've been able to do this?
2: Uh, I am, you know, and like when we... I've tried to write stories that take place in L.A. or, uh, you know, take place outside of the South, and it just does There's a level of... Uh, I don't know there's a level of understanding that I, I feel like it doesn't seem authentic it's uh my I, I don't know it's there's something about setting these stories in the south that I think that Jody and and myself we just uh we we understand it on a on a simpler level that I think it's we're able to pull comedy from it easier
1: there's something really thrilling about f- seeing a representation of your experience I mean like I remember just go- I'm from San Francisco like Full House had nothing to do with San Francisco. like It doesn't have. Nothing to do with San Francisco. But literally just the establishing shots in the credit sequence yeah. were thrilling to me as a kid. Yeah. Like the most exciting thing in the world. Like, oh, I've been, that is something that I know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, you know...
2: We'll do a lot of regional like – so we'll, we'll poke out regional things a lot of times in, in some of our work and I think it is for that. It's for that kid that's back in Virginia, North Carolina and can see something that maybe only him and his friends know about because it's their area culturally. And uh, I think that's cool to kind of, you know, call out your neck of the woods and for people there, you know, it pops for them.
1: I want to play a clip from Eastbound and Down. So Kenny Powers, who's played by my guest Danny McBride, um, has come home. I don't know if you know this, Danny, but you can't go home again. No, you can never go home again. (laughs) Um, And uh, he's brought presents for his nieces and nephews because he wants his brother to love him.
2: (laughs) Hey! Yo, Dustin! What's up? I came to buy back your forgiveness. What are you doing giving my kid an assault rifle? Hey, man, Dustin Jr. is a well-adjusted kid. He's responsible enough to own an assault rifle. Notice I didn't get Wayne one. I'm thinking this thing through.
1: I mean, it seems to me like these characters that you've played in Eastbound and Down, in Foot, Fist, Way, now in Vice Principals, when you say that it's about ego, like the thing that that ego is preventing them from doing is connecting with other people. 100%.
2: Yep. And I, I think that that's kind of like what we, you know, I guess the more we write, the more we see what themes are important to us and what themes are like exploring. But yeah, I guess it is about like ultimately these people that just have a different way of looking at the world and looking at themselves and how that limits them or uh, from having connections with people, how it limits their, their love life, how it limits their uh, their connections to their family. And, uh, you know, and I think in a weird way, it's almost like they're, grasping on to these, like, old concepts of, like, male masculinity to such an extreme that it's, like, it doesn't make you – it doesn't allow you to function like a human being.
1: Did you ever feel anything like the kind of loneliness – that these guys feel there's so much loneliness.
2: There's a lot of guys. loneliness. I don't know what that is either. I think it's just like we're just, you know, uh you know, Jody and I both went to art school together. Like we're these guys who were born in the South, raised there, were we not like the kind of characters that we write about at all. So I'm not sure why we're so obsessed with them. But like, you know, we didn't even neither of us ever played sports. We were not you know, we weren't even baseball fans and uh I don't know what it is, but it's just like the weird art school kid in us that just likes to sort of uh, like find this bittersweetness. But I, I just I don't know. That's what uh, when I watch stories, I want to be moved by them. I want to feel that. And I guess loneliness is uh, I don't know. It's just something that we all ends up kind of finding its way into our work and uh which is surprising because I don't really feel lonely much, but uh, but maybe this is my way of exploring it.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's. I thought it was interesting that you described these characters. You know, I think it's obvious that these characters have huge egos, mm-hmm. right? But you've been – you worked with Kenny Powers for whatever it was, six or seven years, and – uh, you know, you worked on Foot Fist Way when it was like all of all of your money all put mm-hmm. together plus credit cards and it was the most important thing in the world. And, you know, you've made this 18-episode, three-season, whatever, two-season uh, super show <laughs> all at once. So you've spent a lot of time with these characters and, and you describe them as having a different way of looking at the world and that that ultimately is what alienates them from other people.
2: I, I think it is. You know, I mean, with... Uh... Like I said with with Kenny Powers, he was driven by ego, and I really feel like neil is different than Kenny in the sense that he ultimately is just misguided he the way he looks at the, he he feels like he 's followed the rules and he 's done what he was supposed to do uh, to have like you know a standard of living that he believes he deserves you know and and none of that stuff has come true for him he has a failed marriage he has a a strained relationship with his daughter and then being passed over for this job is sort of like the final straw for him and uh you know so once again it's a guy who has a vision of where life should be and it hasn't kind of worked out that way and so it uh you know, the comedy, I guess, comes from how they deal with that. And I guess that it's like a a truth we see in life all the time is that, you know, you always have these ideas of how life's supposed to go. And when it doesn't go that way, I think it's just kind of almost a release to see how these crazy people deal with it.
1: When David Gordon Green became an indie darling after George Washington came out, George Washington is a really beautiful little movie that uh, got a lot of acclaim when it was released, and you guys were all like, like in your in your early mid twenties. Right? Yeah, yep. Did you think that your after having been the second unit director, did you think your ticket was written like you could just move to Los Angeles and get a job?
2: No, I didn't. I never thought that. But weirdly, I knew that. Like, I think if you are if you are a writer, there your pursuit for. Uh, to make it in Hollywood really relies on you just being able to write something that connects. If you're a director or if you're an actor, your chances of success rely on somebody else like giving you a shot, you know, but there's nothing if you're a writer that can keep you from just writing something and if it happens to have an effect on people, it will. So I think when I moved to LA, I just saw I knew there was going to be hard work, but I also looked around and didn't think the competition seemed that steep. I'm like looking at the movies that are in the theaters and I'm just thinking like, man, this stuff is you know, stuff isn't that great. I think we this stuff can be beaten, you know, and we just have to figure out how to do it.
1: Did you continue to believe that after you moved to L.A.? Uh, I, I,
2: I did for about a month, and then... <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, I got a job at the Crocodile Cafe, waiting tables. And then I got a job at like the Holiday Inn in Burbank. And then I was PAing, and uh, and then my girlfriend at the time broke up with me. And then I quickly like gave up everything and moved back to Virginia.
1: <laughs> because one of the things about one of the things about Los Angeles is that you know by its geography and its you know the way that it works, and then also especially if you're in the entertainment industry where it's hard to get a job and most jobs are gigs is that it can lead to this kind of alienation where you feel like you want to move forward, but you just don't, there's no path in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the best advice I got when I first moved to LA was uh,
2: this guy had been out here for a while. He, he said, look, all I can tell you is that uh, you should just find a way to make money that doesn't make you want to kill yourself you know because that's going to be ultimately whether you can stay out here or not is if you can find a way to make a living and still at the end of the day be inspired enough to like work on what you want to work on and that really was true and and that's what I was kind of hitting a wall with here I was just like I I would be so tired and so depressed at the end of the day that I really wouldn't feel like coming home and like writing or working on something and uh and I just started thinking about scripts in a different way too I started like seeing I, I went from wanting to challenge what was out there to like all of a sudden wanting to just like emulate it because that's what would get sold and so once I kind of saw that that was happening that's when I just thought it might be good just to go back home, to go back to the South and to figure out what I was doing and to kind of start new. And, and Jody had a very similar experience, you know, and that was ultimately kind of why we did The Foot Fist Way. It's like we just needed to get out of the city and figure out what we need to do and, and, and come from a place that was a little more true to
1: ourselves. How do you manage a tone where you are making a character as who makes awful, brutal choices and is awful to other people and is the protagonist that you're going to sit with for two hours in a movie or six or 12 or 50 hours in a television show. You
2: know, that to us is, that's the idea behind why we write it you know it's like that's what you figure out the whole entire way for us is that it's like how can we take a character that is going to be so unlike what our viewers are going to be and uh and it's going to have views that are not popular and is you know is going to treat people that care for him in ways that are not healthy and how can we make an audience member get behind somebody who's so different than them uh and I think that's, that's ultimately, like, what all these stories are about. They're all, like, equa- you know, mathematical equations of how to get someone to root for
1: someone that's not like them. I'll continue my conversation with Danny McBride after a break. He's the star of the new HBO series, Vice Principles. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The biggest two weeks of this year's U.S. presidential election are here. The Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Cleveland and Philadelphia. But if the news is a lot to keep up with, don't. Just keep up with the NPR Politics Podcast. They'll be at the conventions doing quick daily episodes first thing every morning. Know what's happening and what it means without that cable news hangover. Find the NPR Politics Podcast on the NPR One app or at npr.org Podcasts. The three of you enter a cave of a big red dragon, and is standing over a horde of precious golden rubies. And he says, "What do you do, adventurers? I'm a dragon man." I cast fire on him. It's very good. I address the red dragon to say, "Us, we're the hosts of the Adventure Zone, a podcast about family playing Dungeons and Dragons." Very good synergy. Commit to the bit. I I, <laughs> I roll to charm new listeners. It is very effective <laughs> against all odds. Everybody, we're the Macroys. We host the Adventure Zones podcast where we play Dungeons and Dragons together. It's a comedy podcast. We don't take the rules too seriously because there's a lot of them and we did not take the time to learn them. Maybe listen to us. We come out every other Thursday on the Maximum Fun Network. You can find us on iTunes or on MaximumFun.org. I think this promo's a critical hit. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to comedy writer and actor Danny McBride, co-creator of the new HBO series Vice Principals. I think it's rare for somebody to go off to college and work as deeply and extensively with their college buddies. Yeah. As you have. Yeah, which is very incestuous. It's weird. But uh, yeah, I don't make new friends. All my
2: friends are my friends from 18 years old. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, you know, we we had the premiere for Vice Principals last night, and I was sitting there looking at the uh, credits, and it's like, there's like 25 people that I've known since I was 18 years old that are major components of that show, and uh, yeah, you know, we went to this North Carolina School of the Arts, and it was a, you know, a small film school in the South, outside of the big city, and We were so disconnected from, you know, any cities where people were really making movies. It wasn't NYU. It wasn't USC. I think that it kind of, like, made us all feel like we were sort of on this preposterous, like, dream together, that there wasn't really a chance that any of us would be able to do this. So we kind of wanted to band together. And David Green, he graduated a year before us, and uh, he came back to school when we graduated, and we shot uh, George Washington I directed second unit on that, and and everybody kind of just came together and worked on it. And I think seeing him do that and knowing and, and seeing him get a career from it and knowing that we all had a piece of it, that we all had helped do this, I think it just uh, it had an impact on everybody. I think it made everyone just feel like if we could continue staying as a team, we would be capable of doing the weird things we wanted to do, I guess. And, uh, and along the way, everyone kind of gets better at what they do. So it's like, you know, we... The camera operator. We went to school with the editor. The a lot of guys on the writing staff. The production designer. I mean, these are all major positions in a you know on a production, and they're all guys that we've
1: developed relations with you know for years. There's something in the tone of Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals that I think is also represented in David Gordon Green's movies, both his you know, more art house movies and your Pineapple Express type movies. Mm -hmm. And it is, uh, there's a quality that you feel like you're just kind of tuned in to something that happens to be happening. And I wonder if that's like a choice that you've made, that you feel like you don't, rather than feeling like we're watching something we could, we'll never have a chance to see again, that we're watching something that just happens to be passing by our window. Uh, I think there's something like,
2: Beautiful and poetic about that sort of approach. I, I definitely think that's true. And it's the way that David even directs. Uh, you know, a lot of times on Eastbound or Pineapple Express or, you know, even things like George Washington, he never lets the cameras and the setups sort of get in the way of what's just happening. You know, he really likes to sort of, like, set the cameras up, and then he'll sometimes just sit underneath the cameras and just sit there and just watch what's happening. And then he'll throw a little direction here or there while the cameras are rolling. But I think there's something... I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know how to put it into words really. But there's something fresh and cool about the idea of that of
1: just observing this. You know,
2: these weird things
1: play out. You know, are there moments that w- when you're sitting down to write it that you cross out because they feel like they they cross that line into something that doesn't feel like it just happens to be happening?
2: It does happen. We do that a lot. I mean, we we you know we burn out our writers on on these shows i mean we it's really weird how we even write these i mean we we never i don't i've never been in another television room so i don't know how other tv shows write but it's you know it'll usually be just like three or four of us and we never like lock an episode it's like we're writing all of them at one time and so if something changes in episode 6 we have to go back and like rewrite episode 3 and uh and we do like 60 70 drafts of these things it's nuts and so uh there's always a lot of things that are explored or thought about. I mean, we've gotten whole drafts of scripts that are 40 drafts deep, and then we end up just ditching the whole entire thing and starting with something new because it doesn't give us the building block we need to kind of get where we want. Or it jumps, you know, our tone. It it pushes the story too hard, and we have to figure out how to, like, bring it back.
1: Let's play another scene from Vice Principals with my guest Danny McBride. So uh, his character, Gamby, and the other vice principal, Russell have shown up to a meeting uh, and they've they've each been told that the new principal of the school is about to be chosen and they both think that it's going to be them. I'm sure we all know that Mr. Wells left some large shoes to fill. So big. But I think we wound up with the right person. Someone with a lot of experience. Gotta have experience, most important part. And someone who's very likable. It's essential to be likable. Indeed. That's why. Knock, knock. (laughs) Here she is. (laughs) Gentlemen, I'd like you to meet Dr. Belinda Brown, the new principal at North Jackson. (laughs) I am so sorry that I'm late. There's a car parked in the principal's space. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dr. Brown was principal of several very high-achieving schools in Philadelphia. Oh, look at you being so nice. And who's this, sitting in my chair, keeping it warm for me like a gentleman? Excuse me. He basically just wanders off like a zombie and starts vomiting behind the school. You know, like, with with this
2: show, it's, you know, we... This story, for all intents and purposes, like you're following the bad guys on this show. I mean if this were a different story, Kimberly's character, Dr. Brown, I mean she would be the protagonist. She's this lady who comes to this school and like turns things around and there's two people that are trying to thwart her. And it just seemed funny to tell the story from the guys who are trying to thwart her instead of, you know,
1: the protagonist, the the, the hero. Both this show and uh, the beginnings of Eastbound and Down are in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, And it is the most disconcerting experience in the world to see the world of a school as an adult or as an outsider. And I know you were a substitute teacher for a while. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that it's disconcerting in the sense that you're like, oh, children are awful or something. It's just that it is just a very different perspective to something that is so foundational to your identity. It, it, It is true. It's like, you know, when
2: I was a sub it definitely gave me that opportunity to kind of see the other side of the, you know, in the teacher's lounge and, and kind of see that perspective. And, you know, one thing I just always think is kind of fascinating about high school or middle school, anything is when you're there, uh, the stakes are so high for you. You know, it's like there's the girl you like, there's the the people you want to be friends with, there's the, you know – the, the the office you want to try to run for, if it's, you know, you want to get into that. There's so many things that are so important and everyone's trying so hard to just survive it or to uh, to get through it. And, like, time stretches out forever. It, it does. Forever. It goes forever. And then all it takes is to come back, like three years later four years later and all those things that were important to you all those people that like mattered and were these fixtures they're all gone and none of these people know who any of them were and they all have their own things i mean it's like i really do think it's like a chance to see what it would be like to just be a ghost just to see that nobody (laughs) gives (laughs) about what you did and they all have their own things they're important about that your time in the sun was there and now it's gone and uh and that idea of of um of, of like, what's important is so fleeting. Uh, I don't know. That's why I think there is, like, some tragedy to high school in a way in the fact that, you know, it is such a short period of time that feels so very important and is so easily forgotten by everyone else around, you know.
1: And then there is this other world. I remember, like, this is a real memory. Like, I remember not wanting to go to the bathroom in the teacher's bathroom. And this was a different campus. My high school had moved campuses. (laughs) Like, it wasn't even the teacher's bathroom, like, the actual teacher's bathroom I wasn't allowed to go into. It was a different teacher's bathroom. And I remember, like, feeling, like, fully, like, I was on some cocoon, like, (laughs) passing between worlds. (laughs) You know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. You know, when I went back subbing,
2: there was this – I was already feeling very down on myself just because things hadn't turned out the way I wanted them to in Los Angeles and I remember the first day the kids like walked into my room and the very first time I was subbing and I instantly got this weird panic of like once I saw like my name Mr. McBride on the chalkboard and then I started talking in the way that like substitutes had talked to me when I was a kid and I started seeing myself through their eyes and weirdly it became suddenly very important to like let them know that I'm not like the other teachers <laughs> that I'm actually cool and that I'm not like the man you know and I'm here I'm on there I'm more like them than you know
1: but I mean that is I mean that is such a I imagine part of why that's such a vivid moment in your life is that it was after that you went to Los Angeles like you went you're like I'm gonna go to Los Angeles I worked on this movie that became a thing I'm gonna go to Los Angeles and work and build this dream Mm -hmm. and then you came back and like you're in this position where you feel like you have to explain why you're allowed to why have a dream. Why you're back. Yeah. It's totally Not just crap. why you're back, but like why if you especially if you're back, why you're allowed to be the guy that's like, "No, but I'm not just going to be a chemistry teacher. <laughs> I got bigger Even ideas. though I already failed. <laughs>
2: you know what I mean? I totally get it. Yeah, I mean completely. I mean there I can remember I would sub in the day and I would bartend at night and uh You know, when I was in school, in high school, I was, like, always trying to make movies. And I, you know, and so even when I just even made the move to Los Angeles, that was a big step to, like, friends of mine that were still back in town. So even coming back and, like, bartending, I remember I would, like, run into old people like, whoa, what, you're working here? You know, and I always felt this need to sort of, yeah, explain that of, like, yeah, okay, look, I know this doesn't look like I'm achieving what I had always said I would, but that will come and... (laughs) Did you believe that? Uh, I did. I always thought that we would be able to – I really felt like if I just was, could able to stick in it, I, I would be able to to find what I needed to do. Did you feel, ever feel guilty
1: about the fact that you felt that way?
2: Uh, I didn't really. I feel like I didn't have anything else to really focus on, I guess. It was just – I was just kind of so focused on kind of getting to like make a movie or do it. And that, that that's kind of an odd thing too is just like you uh, – you know, you you dream so long about like a- accomplishing something and then actually when you do accomplish it, then there's this whole other level of like, well – I mean I've always thought that, like when a movie comes out, there's nothing more anticlimactic than like – a movie coming out or a TV show you've worked on because you've put all this energy into it and you're kind of waiting for that one moment when everyone turns around and just says, good work, you know, but it never happens. It's just like your experience with the project is the richest when you're just making it and the fact that you get to do it and then however it's received, you know, I mean, you can put importance on that or not, but it's never like there's a big moment where you're like given the keys to the kingdom and then everything else is going to be good. It's like as quickly as it comes it 's just on to what 's next you know and uh and, and so that was interesting to always like be pushing for this goal in in my head, never really thinking what would happen after you were able to achieve it you know like uh, and that was kind of with foot fist way we were like we 're doing it we 're making this independent film it 's getting into Sundance, and then we go to Sundance and no one buys it it 's like Oh, we did it. Uh, so we did it. We made a movie. And, you know, and it was uh, the idea that, like, oh, this is going to be a much longer journey than we had anticipated. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs on this road. It's not going to be about just making one thing and then everything's
1: set. Do you think of yourself as an actor, if you think of yourself? I really –
2: I think of myself more as a writer. But, uh, you know, and I, that's what's funny is, like, uh, you know, I'll see things and they'll be like, I'm a comedian. And I always think of comedians as, like, stand-up comics, you know, and – uh and, and so that's that's like a, a title that I'm like, oh, that's funny that that's how I'm, I'm perceived. I'm a
1: comedian, but... <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Danny McBride. He's got a new series on HBO. It's called Vice Principals. Something that I can't imagine about you and your work, you know, that I have a hard time putting myself in your shoes, is that, you know, you have this, as a performer, You have you've been gifted with this quality that allows you to and you know skill as well but uh, a quality that allows you to be this kind of inhuman monster <laughs> and still like maintain touch with humanity like the audience can feel the feel that there's something decent or something to love inside of that you know yeah and it's like an amazing thing to have in your tool belt and it made you a movie star you know you've been in great awesome movies that I'm sure you got paid a ton of money to be in you know what I mean and that's like awesome and God bless you for it but like at the same time when you have some when you have a a tool in your tool belt that's that powerful it must be hard not to get subsumed by it you know what I mean you know maybe that's
2: part of why I do keep my friends from college so close and i do kind of keep up with all these people that i've known for so long it's it's a way of uh those people know who i am and yeah i don't have to like live my life in a way where i'm like convincing people that i'm not this guy you know uh and i i think it just has helped with the whole experience of uh of i don't know being able to to be myself and and not sort of get lost in the idea of this persona you know that that is seen on screen it's probably fun to do it though right it's a blast. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it <laughs> I really mean, is. You could, I bet you can really see why people just want to be kidnapped.
2: And it's something that I don't have the courage to ever do in real life. You know, it's like that—that that sort of, uh, you know, how Kenny Powers handles situations. That's always like hap- that comes to me like 15 minutes after I just had the encounter. So <laughs> I should have just said this to him.
1: <laughs> Maybe if, like, in real life confrontational situations, they'd give you—they'd uh, give you one for them and then one for you. Yeah, <laughs> just exactly. just give us a run here, and we'll pick out whatever the best comeback is that you come up with.
2: I mean, there's been times where I've been out to a bar and someone will come up to me and they'll be like, "Oh man, I'm I'm just like Kenny Powers," and it's just like, "All right, I'm out the door." <laughs> but it, you know, that was a show for us about ego and about all the dangers that go along with ego and celebrity, and uh, and, and Kenny had to be like just the most selfish monster, and, and that that's what that show was about is about this guy letting go of his of his ego so he can have a life at some point and uh you know and and it was fun to be able to write somebody who like just is completely selfish you know and and what happens when you approach life that way
1: what part of your career do you feel like you're most proud of
2: i think the writing i think uh you know what we've done with vice principals uh with eastbound i uh yeah i just i don't know to me it's like Movies are at a weird place right now for me. It's like I find myself going to the movies less and less, and I find myself being interested in movies less and less. I'm interested in documentaries. I'm interested – I don't know. There's something about movies that are losing their appeal to me a little bit. Yeah, you're old now. I'm old. I am. <laughs> but it there's something, to me too. <laughs> there's something about TV though that I feel like it's this new landscape. It's like you can uh, – you know, I know everyone's go. Like, oh, you know, they can do all this cool stuff on TV. But I really do think that what's cool about TV is that you can tell a story that's not an hour and a half. And if you're a writer and you're coming up with a story, you know the audience. You've seen enough movies that anyone now can guess what happens in movies because you know, all right, we're thirty minutes in. This is going to be where where Homeboy makes a choice to do something he's not done before and we're 45 minutes in, it's going to blow up in his face. You know, everybody has seen these beats, that there's something about getting out of that structure that you can suddenly take the audience into places that they're not going to be able to see where the story's going. I think that's what's exciting about TV.
1: Well, Danny McBride, thank you so much for taking all this time to come in here and talk to me. It was really great to have you on the show. Awesome, Jesse. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Danny McBride's new show on The home box office network, perhaps you've heard of it, is called Vice Principals. After a break, Miroslav Vyaches, jazz bassist and co-founder of the groundbreaking band Weather Report, will tell us about the recording session that changed his life. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I'm Aaron Gibson. I'm Brian Sophie. And we host Throwing Shade, a weekly look at all the issues that are important to ladies and gays, and anybody else who cares about that stuff, and
0: we uh and we make we make funnies. Yeah, either you oh, care or you awful. don't.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Few artists can say that they were there for a revolution. Miroslav Vyaches is one of a handful of musicians who in the late 60s pushed jazz into new territory. They threw out the idea of jazz as a sacred form, played by men in suits with acoustic instruments. They stopped looking down on other types of music and embraced rock, psychedelia, funk, and soul. And Miroslav was there contributing to it all with songs like Purple from his 1970 album of the same name. He was also a founding member of Weather Report. The band featured saxophonist Wayne Shorter and keyboardist Joe Zawinul, both of whom had already been pushing the boundaries of jazz for years. On his latest album, Music of Weather Report, Vicious remakes several of the band's songs with an updated sound. ¶¶ In 1971, on Weather Report's first album, they worked on a Miroslav composition called Morning Lake. It was a session Miroslav Vicious will never forget.
0: My name is Miroslav Vicious, and I'm going to tell you about Weather Report's session for the song called Morning Lake. This song was already alive before we got together with Joe and Wayne. It was recorded on an album called Purple, in a little bit different form. It was called Water Lily. And I think John McLaughlin was playing on the track, Billy Cobham, myself. Wayne, the had me on his last three albums before we got together, and I also played on the only Zavinu's album, which was uh, made up to that point, which was called Zavinu, time of the Morning Lake recording, it was the first time at which we played the song because it was the very beginning of the group and we rehearsed about uh, two to three months in New York in uh, Tom Pietro uh, rehearsing studio. We rehearsed, I think, twice a week, maybe three times a week, something like this we had. structured uh, song, which uh, created this space, which became the mark of the, of the more modern music at, than it was played until that time. There were other pieces which we uh, which we created on the spot. Like, for example, we made some auditions of the drummers and one of the drummers was Dan Elias. I remember that he was sitting at the drums and he started to play this beat. And I just picked up the electric bass and I just went... Immediately, like right at that moment, Joe and Wayne went... This was created on the spot, completely intuitively. You know, you know, like <laughs> I think during uh, two minutes, and uh, a tune called umbrellas. to go fishing a lot and uh, in the morning where the little fog comes on the water and all the animals start to wake up and sing their songs and uh, the fish starts to bite and all that and the birds starts to fly. That's why it's called Morning light, because the whole space reminded me of this beautiful silent water. I think the inspiration comes from the nature, for sure. Hmm. The percussionist actually gave, uh, you know, quite a bit of a color to it, and it also made the. Form of the song longer, you know, there was more space because uh, we left more space so so the percussion could answer, actually, the phrases and the melody. I think we made two or three takes on this morning lake and uh, I think the first one probably was it. So it was a magical moment, for sure. You know, because this kind of a space was never played by anyone like that. It was a, it was a new thing, and it was, it was magical. So the report was great. The report was great at that time. It's a beautiful melody which goes on, so it can be played and performed in different way, it can be arranged in different way, you know, so it, it's, it never ages. We all knew that, that we were onto something new, because the, we didn't play jazz anymore, and we didn't play pop, and we just expanded to music, and the, the time was coming that the, kind of a rock jazz was, you know, that's, that's, what, that's actually when it was created at that, at that time. by by a few different bands, but the reporter was one of them, of course. So we knew, we knew that it was going to go a long ways, but probably didn't know that it was going to have such an incredible influence over all those years on all musicians and music, which it did. Miroslav Vyaches, on the session he'll never forget. His new album is
1: called Music of Weather Report. Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host, It's the outshot. I've been thinking about the word twee lately. It's been cropping up in my Facebook feed and my Twitter timeline a lot. Mostly derisively. I think it's a way to say hipster and pretend that you're saying something more precise than hipster. People mostly use it as a kind of general synonym for mannered. Not exactly the kind of mannered that the dictionary says that it describes. You know, sweet, quaint, sentimental. More like... Anything that puts aesthetics up front? I mean, contempt for aesthetics is one of the few things that nerds and jocks can agree on. But me? I'm not against twee. I love Wes Anderson movies. I think Zoe Deschanel is fantastic. I got all those Vampire Weekend records, too. Heck, I run a men's fashion website. I'm on the side of aesthetics. I'm on team beauty. But mannered can be tough to pull off. That's why it's so exciting when it works. This weekend, I saw a movie called The Hunt for the Wilder People. It was mannered, light, sweet, and it was also hilarious and really moving. Ricky Baker. He is a bad egg. His history of offenses and reoffenses is too long to list. We're talking graffitiing,
0: littering, smashing stuff, burning stuff, breaking stuff, stealing stuff, throwing rocks, running away.
1: And it's just the stuff we know about. It's about a boy who's on his last shot at foster care, maybe 14 years old. He's hurting, misbehaving, and the social worker drops him off in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand. There's this little house and a not-quite-elderly couple who live there, a woman who wants him there and a man who basically doesn't talk to him or make eye contact under any circumstances. And it's going kind of good. And then a few weeks in, or maybe a month or two in, it's hard to say, the woman dies. And so it leaves these two guys together a young teenager, and a 60-something man. Both terrified of their feelings of connecting with each other. Both of them love this woman, and they make a sort of alliance. And then when social services comes to take the kid back, the two of them head off into the wilderness. Look, it's not an original Idea to put two emotionally conflicted men into a series of action sequences and then help them come closer together. But it's rare that that theme or that way of handling that theme is so sweet. should
0: be alive. So what do we do now? We run. Run, boy, run. This world is not meant for you. Run, boy, run. They're trying to catch you. Run, boy, run. And uh oh, no. maybe I don't need to run. Oh yeah, this is fast walk. Yeah. Oh.
1: Wilder people is exciting and funny, but it's also stylish and I don't know, lovely. A little fantastical at times. In other words, it's basically exactly the kind of thing that Twee haters call Twee. That said, it's also about two survivalists being chased through the forest by cops. So, in a way, it's exactly the opposite of those people's cupcake stereotypes. By the time you get to the car chase finale and the gentle, quiet denouement, your heart's so engaged that you could never in a million, billion, trillion years accuse wilder people of being superficial, despite how pretty it is. Okay, this is Heck. You can call him uncle
0: if you like. No, I can't.
1: Bella told me to tell you that you should give me something to do. Is there anything you want me to do?
0: Yeah. Leave me alone.
1: Cool. Oh. You ever been up in that jungle before? There's
0: about a million hectares of it, buddy. It's easy
1: to get lost. You lost? Oh.
0: I'm amazed how lost you got. You
1: little oh.
2: We got no choice but to camp out here for a few weeks.
1: Where are you, Ricky Baker? More on this massive national manhunt. Walkner is Cork Asian. Well, they got their own because you're obviously white.
0: You're going to jail, you pervert. what you call me? The pervert. Back up, homies, and let go of my uncle.
1: A guy called Taika Waititi directed the film. It's even better than his first boy, which I recommended on this show a few years ago. In Wilder People, he taps into these deep aquifers of feeling, running underneath a very simple story. The style and the lightness and the jokes, they just pull you deeper. So why should we be afraid to be sweet or mannered or beautiful? Art manipulates the world. Storytelling reshapes the world. It's fundamentally mannered. If we aren't making our experience more beautiful or more powerful or more moving in the retelling, then why are we doing it? So. I'm going to call Taiko Waititi and his movie about two guys killing pigs in the wilderness Twee. And I hope that you take it as the high compliment that it's intended to be. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers, Dan Gallucci, our production assistant, Christian Duenas, senior producer, Colin Anderson. Our interstitial music, provided by Dan Wally. Thank you, Dan. Also, thanks to the Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks this week to Miroslav Vichis himself for engineering help on his side. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the panel discusses choose your own adventure and fantasy books. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.